Welcome to the Your Oxygen Mask First podcast. I'm Erin Young, and this is the space where we explore ways to help the helpers. Because you can't help anyone before you help yourself. So sit back, put your own oxygen mask on, and enjoy the ride. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us again, and hold on to your butts, people, because it is going to be a ride today. I promise you, we are going to have a great time, and it may be a little controversial, So early warning, we are talking about mental health, of course, because that's what I do, but we're also talking about gun ownership. And especially in this day and age, there's a lot of things going on and there's a lot of different opinions. Everybody's got one, but I think today, if you hold on and you have an open mind and you're patient, you're going to come away from listening or watching this podcast with, um, some things to process and to really, uh, listen to yourself and figure out where you stand on this and how you can help. So I am really excited to be joined with two very engaging and awesome guys right now. We have Jake Whiskershin. Did I say that right? Whiskershin. Pretty close. Whiskershin. See, I'm, yeah, I'm never going to get names right. He's a marriage and family counselor here in Reno, Nevada. He's also a nationally certified counselor, and he is a seasoned podcaster himself. He has quite a few going on right now. We also have Mike Sedini. He is a third-generation firearm industry professional, and people call him the most ungun gun guy, and I can't wait to figure out and listen to him explain why that is. Uh, He founded the nonprofit Walk the Talk America, which works to bring gun owners firearm dealers, manufacturers, and mental health professionals, which is kind of a odd combination, but it's sorely needed, bring them together to help responsible gun ownership and mental health care exist in the same space. Believe it or not, these two are going to tell you how that can happen. So thank you both for coming. Yeah, thanks, Erin. Appreciate it. It's awesome. Uh, I guess she, she left with you, right? So you should probably start. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having us today. Um, I, I'm the ungun gun guy. I got that nickname because uh, over the years, people in the firearms industry used to always go like, you don't act like a gun guy. <laughs> you don't act like a gun guy. And then people outside of the industry used to say the same thing because I didn't grow up around like all the activities that usually gun people right grow up around. I didn't hunt. Uh, I grew up in two of the worst places to probably own firearms. I grew up in New Jersey and, uh, you know, Asbury Park, New Jersey and San Francisco, California. Oh, wow. We just didn't go to the range. We didn't play around with firearms. We didn't have access to them. We didn't go hunting. Um, so that is the nickname I got. I didn't give myself that nickname. That's important for the listeners. <laughs> really, really uncouth to give yourself a nickname. Oh, it's so douchey. <laughs> 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 no, but uh, yeah, that's how that's how that came about. And I, but you know, in seriousness, like that helped. I think with the organization when I found it in 2018. Uh, sometimes it helps not necessarily coming off like a gun guy when you work outside of gun culture, or you work with people outside of gun culture. Yeah, especially if, um, if you're tr- trying to marry the two together. Right, which basically had never been done before the organization started in 2018. Um, actually, before that, it was like taboo uh, to even kind of mention the two together. You know, there's people sat on opposite sides. So it's been kind of fascinating to see where it's 
it's how far it's come along and the progress we're making, bringing the two sides together to look for innovative solutions that don't involve any kind of legislation um, to get people the help they need when they're in crisis. And that's the most important thing that we do. I feel the eyeballs staring at me. I think it's like I need to say something. Um, I guess I should probably explain how we came together because uh, Mike's in Vegas. I, I live in Reno. And the the story about how we connected is, so I work in mental health. As you mentioned, I'm a marriage family therapist by trade. And uh, in 2015, I've, I co-founded a company here called Zephyr Wellness. And before that, I had had some... Um, I had a lifetime of firearms ownership, but I was never really that into it. Um, grew up in a family full of cops. We did hunt. Uh, you know, I am from Nevada. I'm fifth generation. And it was always just seen as a tool. Gun, guns were just a, a tool to get something done. They weren't uh, They weren't a hobby. They weren't for competition. Uh, we didn't trick them out and see how far they could shoot or uh, decorate them or anything like that. So for me, they just kind of sat in the closet and collected dust. But I've, I've always owned firearms. And as such... I also have one of my best friends from college, Jordan Slotnick, who manages Reno Guns and Range, which is owned by his mother. And it's one of our premier firearms retail stores and indoor ranges. And so for years, he and I had talked about this guns and mental health thing because we knew that there was some chasm seemingly self-imposed by the two communities that uh, we just couldn't get across. And so one day he texts me and asked if I'd heard of Walk the Talk America. And I said, no. And, and you know, on my smartphone, I look up them and uh, they end up being Mike. And so I emailed them and asked if uh, they would like to send a representative to be on my podcast. And at that point, I'd had noggin notes for a couple of years and we addressed mental health. And I thought, oh, guns and mental health, that's innovative. So Mike writes back very promptly and uh we scheduled a phone call and we talked for three hours and uh part of that was the podcast and then we were bffs after that because <laughs> i thought that what he was doing was super cool and i thought i might play a role in it now at the same time so this was uh spring of 2019 that we connected at that time i was chairing my licensing board here in the state and i through some of that work i had connected with a lot of other peer colleagues from different disciplines within the mental health profession. So drug and alcohol counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, uh, clinical professional counselors, social workers. And I had also known some of their uh, board people, their, their executive directors and board members and so forth. And I thought, you know, what would be cool is to try to strip away some of the stigma of the profession, but also of firearms culture by teaching clinicians about what gun culture is. And then we can get continuing education credit for it. And I thought I, ha I had this brilliant idea, right? We'll teach this class and people will love to take it. And then it'll invite gun owners in to get counseling so that we stop them from taking their own lives. And that's really what Walk Talk America is at its root is a suicide prevention organization, but it's also an awareness building organization. It's a consensus building organization. So we did this and we, we put these courses together and uh, they've been a wild success. And we could talk more about that in the in the future, you know, through, throughout the course of our conversation. But, but I thought it was important that this was, this was organic and it was through somebody I'd known for years and an, and an idea that had just rolled around in our heads for a number of years and Mike was doing it, you know? And so it's, it's probably instructive to the audience to understand where this came from too. So, you know, maybe I'll kick it back to Mike and he can share why this even came to fruition at all. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, owned a company that basically imported firearms from all over the world uh, to the United States. So for the listeners, 
basically, if the company wasn't big enough to have their own presence in the United States, they'd find someone like me who handled their sales, their marketing, their customer service, their warranty. It was like a turnkey operation. Well, I build your brand in the U.S. Um, being that I was an ungun gun guy, I was a product of nepotism. I didn't grow up around guns, even though we had a gun company in our family, which is kind of a strange thing to say. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, looking back at all the, uh, you know, people that were involved from my family, they weren't much into guns either. Um, but what that did was give me the opportunity to kind of go in and look at firearms as a business. And I got to observe a lot of things um, about the industry. You know, you go into the firearms industry and you don't know what's true or not. You hear things, especially when you grow up around people that aren't around guns. Like you hear one example of that would be the firearms industry doesn't care about saving lives. All they care about is money. You know, things like that you'd hear over and over again. Uh, but what I found is that really wasn't the case. So, you know, I've always kind of kept that attitude when talking to someone who doesn't understand the firearms industry, but also understanding where they're coming from, right? It's because they just don't know. Well, in 2009, unfortunately, the president of my own company took his own life with a firearm. And it was one of those awkward things where we were trying to grieve, but we couldn't really address the issue. And what I noticed is when these incidents would happen inside the firearms industry, we really didn't talk about it. We were afraid to kind of talk about it. And I think it's because we were worried that situations like this get used and weaponized against us. Um, so when Bill passed, we all kind of kept it moving and everyone kind of just, you know, had, we had the funeral and then it just wasn't talked about. You didn't see it in any of the uh, magazines for the industry. And Bill was a pretty popular guy, but once again, it's kind of like not talking about it because we just don't do that. And we don't want to make the firearms industry look bad. And suicide is part of the number that's used against the firearms industry in many people's arguments. When you look at the total number of firearms deaths, two thirds of them are suicide by firearm, right? So that's something that we're very sensitive about. Plus at the time in 2009, the NRA was becoming sort of this lifestyle brand that people um, were making everything political, right? So the NRA is creating this narrative that anybody that works in mental health, they're all gun grabbers, all they want to do is use your mental health against you to snatch your firearms. And in some cases that was true, right? In some professions that was true. So it, it, it wasn't all just a campaign of fear mongering to get money. Um, there were many cases where, especially professions like the military and our first responders, where your mental health could you know, have a consequence to your access to firearms or even access to your jobs, right? Your security clearance. Um, in 2017, I was in New Orleans. I had a chance meeting with a complete stranger that was really cool. We invited her to sit down at our dinner and my national sales manager and I, we were celebrating. I mean, we were, we were in it. We were like 11 vodka sodas deep <laughs> and you know, she didn't know anything about firearms. So she says to me, uh, I'm pretty neutral on firearms. I really don't care. I just don't understand how does it work when there's a mass shooting? And I said, well, when there's a mass shooting, everybody blames the firearm. Uh, industry. We blame mental health and nothing ever happens. And she asked one question and completely changed my life. And she said, okay, if you understand what the problem is or what you think the problem is, how does the firearms industry work hand in hand with the mental health community to figure out solutions to, you know, fix some of these issues? And that was it. That was like the catalyst to start 
this whole organization. And keep in mind, in the very beginning, um, you know, to me, it was just okay. Let's let's figure out a way to give money to mental health. Let them solve the problems, and then you know, we'll look like good guys for once, and and you know, the, the world will be better. There was so much that I had to learn, but that is how the organization started. It started off of a chance conversation with a complete stranger that really to me was like pointing out how silly it is that we don't communicate with each other, you know? No. And I think that that is an amazing story on how the nonprofit kind of came to be and, and where you come from in your philosophy of it. I was um, kind of scrolling on Twitter, waiting in line at Jimmy John's of all places the other day. And I read, um, I think it was maybe conjecture. It's not an actual statistic, but the majority of Americans know at least one person who's either been harmed or killed by gun violence or suicide. And that kind of snapped me into a little bit of a reality because I do know someone who died of suicide with a firearm. And um, the the problem is more prevalent uh, now that we're more aware of it. But the solutions, though, um, especially the mental health solution, is not really being talked about. And like, especially like you're talking about uh, first responders and military, where you have that fear of fitness for duty. That's huge, where we could stop a lot of problems in their tracks at the beginning of them. uh, But people are afraid of having their duty weapon taken from them. Therefore, they're no longer able to work and provide for their families. Yeah, and that's not a a unique problem specifically pertaining to those two fields. What we found through this endeavor over the last couple of years is that many other professions irrespective of firearms ownership suffer the same internalized stigma so take for example emergency medicine physicians who work under pressure all the time and are constantly constantly seeing uh, horrific things and the the negative outcomes of all sorts of violence and accidents and negligence um, they also are under duress they also suffer greatly from emotional strain and psychological burden and they also resist coming in for care because of the same fear of deemed being deemed unfit for duty uh, or unfit to practice or impaired is the is usually the word that we use in in the health profession. But it, it extends to uh, other avenues as well. So there there may be a speculation that if you're depressed, you can't focus on your job. Okay, fair enough. Or if you have anxiety, you can't focus. I mean, we see this in schools. Uh, that's that's fair, right? Um, that can be treated if we change the narrative that says, all right, take take some time off, right? Uh, if you get the flu, you don't go to work. You wait till it passes. You eat chicken soup and you try to keep some, you know, some food down and then you, you heal and you move on. Mental illness is the same way. And we need to be courageous enough to say mental illness can be overcome. Go get your treatment. Take care of it. Return to full, full functioning. Because if there's an impairment, we don't want you working impaired. I'll, I'll borrow an analogy that... Uh, one of my my clinical director had a patient once who gave him this, and he said, uh, in in his military experience, they would be out on a ruck perhaps, and and if somebody turns his ankle, and doesn't tell the rest of the group or tell the command staff, he becomes a liability for the rest of the trip, and the same thing is true of suffering with a mental illness, whether it's a stress in the home, you know, spousal conflict, children aren't doing well, uh, or something even more high level that may be diagnosable. If you don't acknowledge it, it's going to sit there and fester and grow and become a liability to the rest of your peer group, your uh, coworkers, your family and friends. So you want to get it treated. 
So that's one thing that we're trying to push is that mental illness can be overcome. It can be treated. You can have a full recovery, just like physical illness and, and certain exceptions, uh, you know, accepted, I suppose. Uh, but, but I'm not here to talk about the exceptions. I'm here to talk about the vast overwhelming majority of what people struggle with. It's, it's you can deal with it. You can, you can overcome it. But then there's the issue of uh, not wanting to receive care at all because of the perception that if you do, you're inherently weak and weak is being judged as bad and who wants to be bad, right? So that would be some other professions that are traditionally uh, you know, tougher. You know, put that in air quotes for the people who aren't watching on YouTube. Hmm. And uh, and the tougher professions, uh, construction, plumbing and pipe fitting, uh, even, even legal, right? Attorneys, and they, they have this uh, internal stigmatization that says, don't go seek help or you're going to be judged negatively for it and we'll mock you and ridicule you. And then, and then you won't be welcomed in the, in the social circles. And that's just as bad. And I think it still stems from the same root cause, which is, well, w- once I acknowledge that I'm struggling, then people are going to think I'm permanently struggling. And that's just fundamentally untrue, but also something our profession has done a very poor job at is advocating what exactly counseling can consists of and what the steps are that you take in uh, getting an appointment, billing insurance, uh, treatment planning, and eventually achieving your goals and moving on and being discharged. So we need to do a better job of advertising exactly what to expect. But then the insurance companies, uh, to add a final uh, touch on this, have, to my knowledge, still never, and we're the only uh, profession under the medical umbrella that I know of, the insurance companies don't reimburse me, the clinician, for what we would call preventative care. So in primary care, in uh, geriatrics, in optometry, dentistry, pediatrics, you get a once a year, four times a year, pop the hood, check the belts and hoses, tune up, and you don't need a diagnosis. Well, if you come into my office, I need to diagnose you as being quote unquote broken. And then we have to formulate a treatment plan. We have to get objectives to the goal and a goal. And these are all supposed to be time limited just to get care. So I have to render a diagnosis to send a code off to insurance just so I can get reimbursed. And even if you come in and you're like, ah, I'm a little off and we have one conversation, you're like, man, I feel so much better. Life makes sense. That's all I needed. Thanks, Jake. I still have to do the full workup and then I presumably discharge you after one session. It's absurd. And that in and of itself stands as a barrier to care because people don't want to be labeled as broken just to go get a tune-up. And I think that's something that we need to address as a society as well. And uh, hopefully it doesn't require uh, policy interventions at a legislative or a congressional level. Hopefully we can just have some reasonable conversations with some executives at some insurance companies and say, hey, man, you know, the, 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 the returns down the road are going to be way greater if you just nip this stuff in the bud instead of letting it fester and grow to the point that somebody's in, uh, you know, in a residential treatment facility or uh uh, some other higher level of care that inherently costs more. We have to we have to speak dollars to to these people to to get them to come to the table. So that's that's my angle on it. It's not just firearms owners. It's it's society as a whole still hasn't shaken off the stigma for whatever reason and whatever origin to make it into professional counseling should they need it. It's the um, the old meme, the old trope about lying on the psychiatrist couch you know, with your arms crossed and, you know, tell me about your life. Tell me about how your parents hurt you, you know, uh, that kind of old school mentality. And I think, you know, and of course this is probably a conversation for another day, but it's a control thing where, you know, if people are not well, they can are more easily be controlled, but that's a a different thing. 
Yeah, that's true too. There's a lot of vulnerability that comes with seeking help, right? And and so we could call it weakness, I guess. Yeah, you're weak because you have to have assistance from somebody else. All right, fine. We don't have to judge it as negative. Uh, and if we want to just swap out words, we can do that too. We can say, uh, it's not weak, it's vulnerability. Vulnerability is never a bad thing because when you're vulnerable and you push through that vulnerability, you know that you're safe on the other side, you grow and you learn how to be intimate with another person. So it all flows together. If you want to have better relationships, you need to learn intimacy. To learn intimacy, you need to be vulnerable. And a great way to practice that is in my office. I can teach you that stuff. Um, but we got to get the messaging through that it's not a bad thing to seek help. I think that's that's critical. And if you can put it back to being a firearm owner too, if you want to be good and competent at carrying your firearm for CCW, you need to practice, right? You need to go to the range. You need to shoot. You need to shoot on different types of weapons that you're going to be carrying. Use different types of ammo that you know that you're going to be carrying. Get that muscle memory going because you want to be competent. If you ever need to use your weapon, you need to know that you're going to use it right. So what's the difference between going to the range and practicing to be a good uh, marksman, as opposed to going to uh, therapy or counseling to practice being a good human. Exactly. That's yeah, exactly. There's a, it's a weird though, when you look at the firearms community, and I'm not talking about the person who just buys one firearm, keeps it in a safe, doesn't practice with it. But if you look at the people that are in it, right, that consider themselves part of 2A culture, uh, there's a lot of alphas. Right. And then you look at people outside of the industry, how they treat people that are knowledgeable with firearms. It's almost like the expectation level is that you can't be weak or have a weakness. Right. Because that's the whole point. You're trained in firearms, whatever that is, whatever we could maybe movies cause that. Right. But but I've had people literally like give me powers that I don't have because I'm trained in firearms. And I'm like, if something pops off of here, I'm running. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, don't necessarily think you can get behind me and I'm going to save everybody just because I'm a firearms owner. Right. So it's this weird thing though, where I think a lot of people take the role seriously and they kind of put themselves in that situation as I can't be weak or this, these people look at me and they see like this badass chick, you know what I mean? That, um, you know, if something were to go down and ISIS comes through the window, I'm going to be able to take care of everybody and end all these threats. And because that's what the whole thing is based on, right? It's a powerful tool that you have in your hand and you're trained with it, but it doesn't necessarily translate to you've figured out life and you, you know, you, your, your brain can handle everything. And, but it's, it's weird how we're given that power, or sometimes we take it upon ourselves to think that we're strong and that's how we deal with stuff. But, you know, yeah, you make a good point, Mike, about the, the the protection, right? If you if you train yourself to be a protector, a defender, uh, then there's this mentality of, of personal resilience that says, I, I am relied upon by others, therefore I, I also must rely upon myself. And then that can be taken too far. Uh, to the point where you say, I don't need any assistance, which is fundamentally untrue because you wouldn't make it to where you are in life without assistance from a whole bunch of people and places and things. So just think back to the instruction that um, Aaron was talking about. If you if you want to go out and train, somebody's telling you how to improve unless you're like really good at it at self-evaluation. You put your own camera up. But somewhere along the way, you probably watch somebody else's video. You probably watch somebody else fire a weapon. You probably read somebody else's book, at least. Um, or it took some instruction when you first bought it about how to dismantle the thing. Somebody wrote those 
instructions. Somebody wrote that instruction manual. You know what I mean? So like, there is no such thing as doing it on your own. It's just fundamentally untrue. And we, and, and that just needs to get right out of people's heads. And I think once we wrap our minds around that concept that there is nothing in life that I did quote unquote on my own, I could say, yeah, I founded my own company or whatever. It's like, yeah, not without help from my, my business partner and my parents giving me the loan. And Oh, by the way, the bunch of of employees that we have generating the revenue to keep it alive. Um, there, there is no such thing as doing it on your own. So insofar as you need some, some psychological help or some help with emotional functioning, I I'm a big advocate of saying that when, when you come into the counseling office, there's more teaching going on than there is anything else. I'm just, you know, we could call it reflection. We can call it homework, but really what I'm doing is I'm teaching you stuff. And then it's your job to go home and and do the repetitions necessary to become efficient at it. So, you know, knowing your own emotions is a great way to learn about oneself and stabilize your own mental well-being. How are you going to get that unless you watch one of my YouTube videos? You're getting help. It's okay. Well, the other thing too, I'm learning more about uh, childhood trauma and people who are raised by parents that were not emotionally available or emotionally immature, or not developed enough. So as these people who are little kids at the time are not getting their hierarchy of needs met, they're becoming um, dysfunctional adults if they're not guided in the right direction. So right. we can kind of look at it as, okay, you're an adult and you think that you're totally fine and you have normal relationships, but maybe you don't. And um, because I'm doing a podcast, the animals have decided to go freaking rampant around my house. Okay. So it's okay. Aaron, everyone knows that you have a dog fighting ring. Just come out and say it. Okay. That's how you make money on the side. Oh, I have to tell you guys about the raccoon. I had a raccoon. a raccoon story. Yeah. A raccoon came into my house this weekend and got into the dog food. Uh, through the oh. doggy door. It's the oh, second no. time this has happened, but I'll um. What, what no, 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 no. I want to hear the story. Did did the like did it do damage or did the dogs attack it or? So it, this happened last time, uh, last year this time, and we the raccoon was coming in and out of the doggy door, and we didn't realize that that's what was happening. The dog had some scratches across his snout, and we're like, "Oh, what were you digging? Were you getting in the fence? What were you doing?" Of course, he's a dog. He's not going to answer me, but I still expected an answer. And one night I realized that we have a big uh, dog food tub thing and it's got a big uh, twist off thing. And so every night I would make sure it was tight. And then, you know, two nights in a row, it was untwisted and there's dog food everywhere. My husband thought it was the cats. So like the cats don't have opposable thumbs to twist, but whatever. So we set up a ring camera in the hallway where the dog food was. And sure enough, a raccoon comes in through the doggy door and he unscrews the lid and is sitting there chowing down on my dog food. And my dog comes around to investigate what's going on and lays down like five feet away from the raccoon eating his food. Like this. watches it go on, <laughs> watches it happen because he's scared because he already got his butt kicked by the raccoon before. And then one of the cats comes over and starts hissing at the raccoon and tries to save the day. Eventually the raccoon leaves. And so we tried to get um, a raccoon trap from Endow, but they don't do raccoons anymore. You have to hire a pest control person. That's a little bit expensive. Um, so <laughs> we got a, a trap, like a small animal trap from a friend and the little bugger is super smart and put his little tiny paw through the little wire and grabbing the dog food that we left out as a bait through the side of the trap and wouldn't get in. So um, eventually we just started locking the doggy door from the inside so it couldn't go in and it went away until last weekend, 
I hear commotion and there's the raccoon back inside my house. He even took a little bath in the dog's water bowl thing. So there's food everywhere, food by the food uh, jug thing. And then I actually have video of my cat going after the raccoon and doing that thing and scaring it away. But it eventually came back and got inside my house. So now we're on day three of locking the doggy door each night. I'll send you guys a video. You have, you'll, you'll enjoy it. You, you have the best house. You have the best house. Those raccoons have determined that they are going to come to your house because yes. you have the best house. Oh, and at work, I have doves that are nesting on my car. Every day I pull into work, two doves hop on my the hood of my car. They get right in that space in between the hood and the glass and they start building a nest. So every day before I leave work, I take the nest and I put it in the tree and I get a new nest every day. And I'm just wondering how long this is going to be happening because apparently I'm the freaking animal whisperer. I was about to say, though, this is like uh, uh, makes for a funny movie, like you're irritated by it all and <laughs> the animals keep bothering you instead of like, like I love this. <laughs> I like I am the new age Snow White. <laughs> or Ace Ventura. Right. Oh. <laughs> I can't do that one. Ha, 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 ha. Not close. No. no. Anyway, we're talking Under about childhood trauma. trauma and we went got on raccoons, so. This well, is why I love you guys. I was traumatized. Yeah. I was traumatized by the raccoon. It scares me. Dog Those was, are nasty. For sure. Yeah, huh, polar bear. Yeah. So you're well, completely distracting me now. That So we have a rat in the backyard that just hops the fences. And uh, for the longest time, I kept telling my, my wife, I, like, it doesn't exist because I never saw it. I've been out there a hundred thousand times, never saw it. I finally saw it the other day. <laughs> it's just like, it exists. I almost like wanted to say I didn't see it just to mess with her. <laughs> like, I didn't see it, <laughs> but uh, she's traumatized. So she has issues going out there at night. Like, you know, when she goes out there, smoke a cigarette or something like that. She's always like, oh, the rat. Uh, trauma's Yeah, rats are sketchy. I, we had we had raccoons once, so I'll just wrap up and tell my story. I suppose we had raccoons. Uh, our, our house butts up against a like a a, a regional park where wildlife exists, and so we get coyotes running through there, and the dogs go crazy. And we got rabbits and squirrels and hawks and all sorts of stuff, owls, um, and raccoons apparently. Because one night the dogs went just absolutely berserk, and they typically sleep in our room. So when they bark, it wakes us up. And my heart leaps out of my chest, runs across the floor and is panting in the corner, waiting for me to come collect it and stick it back in my chest. And that's what happened this particular evening, uh, 3.07-ish in the morning. And they're just going crazy, barking, 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 barking. I'm like, coyotes aren't out this late at night. What's going on? So I grab my flashlight and I'm shining around. We have this big tree on the other side of the fence up, up the hill a little bit. And I see a set of eyes and I was like, oh, there's a cat. I was like, Oh, there's two cats. Nope. Those are raccoons. Oh, there's three of them. So now there's six eyes. Still barking, barking, barking. Two more eyes appear. There's four raccoons. Then and then five. <laughs> there were five raccoons in the tree. And and the funniest thing was they uh they stayed up there. They scrambled up the tree because they didn't know the dogs could get over the fence, right? Bark and bark, bark, bark. Finally, we we get the dogs back in. It's like 20 minutes past. And I'm still staring at the raccoons, going, How are they gonna get down? And I watch and I watch and they're looking and they're looking and they look at me and they look at the ground. And then finally the first one like kind of attempts to run down the 
the, the trunk of the tree and eats it. <laughs> and, and there's bushes, so I can't quite tell, but I know it wasn't graceful. And then like one by one, the rest of the raccoons did. And then, and then there's still one hanging up on the, on the branch. I was like, come on, man, when are you getting, when are you getting down? I'm cold out here, like end the show. And it just jumps. <laughs> it just like, didn't even bother trying to go down the trunk because it watched its buddies fall. And it just, it just took a nosedive right off the, the branch. It's like eight feet off the ground. So that was the entertainment for my evening. Um, no trauma to me, but, um, entertainment for sure. So my, my husband wanted to post himself outside with, um, the pellet gun. And I just don't think that would work. It'll just make him mad. Right. Depends on how powerful your pellet gun is, I suppose, but I wouldn't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it would work or not. Raccoons are kind of big. Yeah. And so, yeah, this, these ones are big. Yeah. I don't know if we have one or two because um, the the way that they were coming at different times, I think there might be two. But um, speaking of raccoons, firearms, childhood yeah. trauma, being traumatized. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, that No, no, it's, it's not an it's not an irrelevant segue. It's not a, a hard left turn. <laughs> uh, Mike and I have been working recently with our uh, state office of suicide prevention on a variety of different things, because there's lots of overlap in this area. And one of the things that's come to our attention is uh, foster parents for the longest time weren't allowed to have guns in the home if they were fostering children, which made it really hard to find and recruit foster parents. Because in Nevada, a lot of people own firearms and a lot of police officers want to become fire, uh, want to become foster parents. And there was just no exemption in the law for that. So a few years back, they had it changed. And, um, and one of the conversations we were having with one of the, the OSP people, uh, was about educating foster parents who are firearms owners about the childhood trauma that's sometimes associated with guns. And it's not necessarily that, kids get guns waved at them or anything, although that happens. And we want to address that. We want to be sensitive to, to wounded children who are being fostered and not re-traumatize them by, you know, just having guns laying around the house if they've had a negative experience with them. But the, but the flip side is that sometimes these kids are so, um, they're so wounded that they're, they're living in this, in this wounding and they don't have any real good self-efficacy and they don't know how to navigate life because they're children anyway. And they're, you know, they're just developmentally behind adults. And so they don't know how to tolerate their distresses. And often if you're a child in transition, bouncing from home to home and whatnot, then you get made fun of at school. And so there's social issues and then there's often academic issues. And so all this just stacks and creates a, a, a real big problem. In addition to all the garbage that got you into foster care in the first place. And the result is mental illness. Kids are, you know, struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorder, depressive disorder, sometimes, you know, other mood disorders, sometimes substance abuse. And if you got guns around the home, you better secure them. But also that gun is such a tool of uh, power and redemptive value and potential that educating children on the proper usage and the responsibility is really critical. And, I, and it was, uh, it was neat to have this conversation because I, I don't know that that particular angle has ever really been addressed. So I, you know, I come in as the, the marriage and family therapy guy who's worked with children his entire adult life. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Safety, security, responsible storage, all that stuff. Uh, don't, don't re-traumatize them. But also 
let's think about how attractive that device is, how attractive that, that tool is to a child who's wounded and suffering and has low, low self-efficacy. And maybe the traditional methods of storage and, and the traditional, hey, stay away from the guns, kids, messaging isn't not only accurate or useful, but also could potentially cause more taboo and more unintentional interest. So, you know, if, if I'm a kid who, you know, I'm getting bullied and I don't, I don't feel good about myself and I need something to make me feel strong and powerful. Well, I'm going to pick the most powerful projectile weapon man has ever invented. And, and that might be a, a reasonable avenue for me to go and like alleviate some of my stress. So, so we want to be, be educational and we want to be mindful that when foster parents who happen to be gun owners, uh, take these kids into their homes that they they look all the way around the the box at all the angles and don't just use a one size fits all approach. So uh, I just want to throw that out there because I think it's something that a lot of times people don't don't acknowledge is that that yeah guns guns can be dangerous guns can be used improperly guns can be irresponsibly stored um, but also they can they can provide a real attractive option for kids who are struggling much like you know a structured environment such as the military can provide a real attractive option too because it, it restores a sense of of ownership and strength to the individual i know plenty of young kids that if you tell them don't touch this don't do this especially if they're particularly defiant they are mm -hmm. going to do everything in their power to do exactly Absolutely. the opposite of what you're saying yeah that's usually yeah. doesn't work when you do that yeah, see, uh, I don't know how many times I've been at a gun show and had a, you know, we have the Walk Talk America booth. You always get these guys that come up and they're, they'll look at some of the programs we have or some of the things we're working on with like the safe companies. And they'll say like, oh, I don't need that. My, my kid, I, my kid's been handling firearms since he was three. You know, he's totally trained. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, it's not necessarily your kid, it's your kid's friends when they come over to the house. And also what you think, you know, sometimes you don't. So like the owner of Canon safe is sitting next to me one time. And one of these guys is like low hard, like, yeah, I've trained all my kids and they know not to go near guns. And I remember he left and his name was Mike Baker. And Mike Baker turns to me and he's like, I grew up in a house full of millions of guns with all these different safes. And the minute my parents, left us alone. My brother and I would break into every safe or try to break into every safe to play with the firearms, right? Like it, it's a common thing. Um, for me, it was porno, right? Like stay away from the porno. And <laughs> I was, no, I'm just kidding. So sort of, uh, no, but like, it's true. Like you can't, you know, you can't just say to a kid, don't do that. I mean, we all know how that works out unless, you know, and it's not necessarily the kid's fault sometimes sometimes it's the peer pressure from the friends like hey show me your dad's gun or anything like that like mm -hmm. yeah there's a psychological oppositional reflex that comes with being told something and not giving a reason so we saw we saw this uh in the pandemic most recently and, and i don't mean to make this political at all and i'm hoping i'm not but when you get uh, a governor or a mayor or a president even that issues an emergency order and people aren't entirely on board with the reasons for the emergency or even question that there is an emergency. And then what flows out of there are emergency directives. It, it inherently usurps the process of what we have known in America for you know several hundred years to be the way things go, which is public participation, 
transparent decision making and a collective consensus. Uh, even if you disagree, there is the appearance or the reasonable understanding that there is a participation along the way. And so when you have a unilateral authority making decisions that are binding across a, a large section of people, there's going to be resistance. And similarly in the home or even in the workplace, when a boss or a parent makes a decision that's binding upon someone and they don't give them a reason or they don't uh, give them an opportunity to have their, their voice heard, there's going to be a, a psychological resistance to that. Uh, people, people typically like to make decisions on their own and not given the freedom to do so, they will do it anyway. And sometimes what we end up having is this, what's called anantiadromic, and I'll just break that down. Uh, it's the Carl Jung term, and meaning an anti-opposite. Dromea is a Greek word for running. So you get like dromedary camels, they run. So anantiadromia is literally translated as running in the opposite. And then parenthetically, the direction that you know best, or the, or in this case, the direction that's been given to you without your consent. So if you if you push, there's going to be a, a push back. And, and in antidromically, it's going to be the opposite of what you intend. So, you know, say, don't, don't do that because I'm the dad. You're going to get, watch me, because you can't control that kid all the time. And eventually, they're, you're going to have to sleep or leave the house or something. Um, but if you say, hey, don't do this, and here's the reasons why, let's talk about it. And I'm not saying you need to negotiate with your children all the time, but but you, you we want to provide an environment where it's conducive to feedback so that they understand the rationale. Well, now you've got a lot more buy-in, and the child or the employee or the citizenry understands the rationale that went into it. And even though they may not agree, they can at least believe that they were part of the process. And when you take the the mystery away from it, and then they're exposed to what a thing actually is, um, I heard kind of heard a term like when uh, with kids and toxic friends, the Romeo and Juliet syndrome, where you keep one child away from another child because you believe that their friend is toxic. Mm -hmm. They um, romanticize this friendship to a certain point where. Um, they will do anything to be around this friend. And then once they get around them and are re-exposed to them, they're like, oh, well, maybe I don't really like this person as much. So I can kind of see that correlation between the excitement of the unknown with discovering a firearm. You know, mom says, don't touch this, don't touch this. Well, why? What, instead of saying, hey, mom, this is a firearm. This is very dangerous. This is why, because it could kill you or somebody else and they're gone. They don't come back. Like they don't regenerate. They don't get another life like a video game. So this is why I don't want you to touch it. If you're curious about it, you can talk to me and we can look at it together. Yep. Yeah. And this is one of the issues that the industry or the firearms community has always faced um, when speaking with the mental health community, right? Because the mental health community comes in Many times, unless you're like someone like Jake, you know, who's a concealed carry holder and, and grew up with firearms, but they say, all right, let's talk safety, right? And they start talking to the firearms community about safety, right? Now, here's the firearms community going, safety, we're, we're some of the safest people in the world. Like, I train my kids, right? Like, we're all safe. And that's why Walk Talk America, we're trying to shift the, the focus, change that word safety and move it to responsibility, because it's a completely different thing. So when you have mental health, you know, clinicians or people from the mental health side, it doesn't even have to be mental health, right? You just have somebody outside of the firearms industry talking to you about safety and you're a firearms owner, and especially one that trains, you're going to automatically shut down. And you're not going to say like, oh yeah, I'm really going to listen to what you have to say because you've never owned a gun or you don't even know what a 
trigger discipline is or muzzle flashing, right? Things like that. Um, and I think that's always where the big disconnect is, is because people want to come in and talk about safety when they need to talk about responsibility. Like leaving your firearms out when you have children in the house, even if they're trained from the age of three, that's not responsible firearms ownership. Right? That's nothing to do with safety. You know, like it's it's a different it's a different lane. And that's, that's, you know, that's one of the things that we really stress with people, especially when we work with coalitions for suicide prevention or, you know, people from the mental health community is we say like, okay, let's, let's refocus our language. So it's not insulting, um, you know, to the firearms owner, to the average person, if you really want to get their attention. Yeah. For me, it's a, it's a big deal because words really matter. And I, I mean, it's not just because I have a journalism degree from undergrad. It's that when I work clinically, I want to be precise with my language and I want to pick words that accurately reflect what I'm trying to express. And safety can be defined a whole bunch of different ways. And I think especially over the last year with this pandemic, safety has just become super watered down and even weaponized. And, and, and so it's even lost meaning, I would, I would suggest, because it's become overused. Responsibility, however, especially in this context, has an individual application. It has to do with personal accountability. There is no mercurial, ethereal definition to it. Res- responsible means me. And if I own that thing, I have to be responsible. And, and more precisely, we can say responsible storage has to do with preventing unauthorized access. So just recently, I saw an article about a, a two kids in a car. There was a gun in a car, a nine-year-old shot the 11-year-old or vice versa, uh, because the thing wasn't wasn't stored responsibly. That's unauthorized access. You got children playing with a gun in a car. That's unauthorized. And unauthorized can be anybody who isn't supposed to be there, right? That could be the criminal who breaks in. That could be the person who in the mental health crisis who uh, is suicidal. It could be an intoxicated individual over for a family party. Uh, it could be the neighbors across the street playing with your kids. Your kids may be authorized, but they're not, right? So responsible should seep into everybody's head as a more precise, accurate way of reflecting what we really mean when we mean safe. And we can even translate that to, uh, you know, healthcare and and employment and school settings and so forth, um, getting away from safe and moving to responsible. And I, and I think the other piece of language that's really critical here if I may, uh, you know, play language cop for a second, is the difference between accidental and negligent. So accident seems to to cast off that responsibility to, ah, oh, man, you know, the world just went sideways and the universe intervened in a way that I didn't expect. And, and so it's not my fault and it's all the oxen free. Whereas negligent invites a responsibility and it invites an accountability that says, take personal care of your own stuff, do not be negligent with it. And, and I've, I had to wrestle with that recently. Rob Pink is one of our board members who, who participates in our class and our trainings that we offer. He came up with that recently. And, and I sat on that for a good couple of weeks. Cause I, like I said, words matter to me and I want to be very intentional with how I use them. And eventually I started using negligent everywhere. I would normally use accidental, including in my home with my two children who are almost six and almost four. So they're very young, but I just keep saying negligent, negligent, you know, it's a, oh, it was an accident. No, you knocked over the cup. You were negligent with your elbow. Like, and, and it's not judgmental. It's just, it's just a statement of fact. Someone needs to take responsibility for this. So a car accident, no, no somebody was negligent. Somebody was negligent. Oh, the, the conditions, the weather, the ice, the snow, you, you know, give them more space, slow your wheels down. Somebody's being negligent. 
Um, so I, I invite people to, to challenge their own vocabulary in that realm and replace safety with responsibility and then accident with negligent. And I think we'll, we'll all start to take a little more personal uh, self-ownership in, in our behaviors when we do that. No, I think um, those are definitely two words I need to start rotating in in my vocabulary too. It, it just makes it more, um, it puts more weight into it, like you said. And some of the, the safety words I believe have been watered down, especially in the pandemic. Um, Mike, let's talk about what the nonprofit's doing to work with the gun manufacturers and retailers um, that um, the gun side of things. And then why don't we talk about um, the mental health training? Okay. Yeah. So let me just back up for a second. When I started the organization, the whole concept was in my head, I wanted to take a shortcut. I wanted to give money starting with my company's money. I was going to donate a dollar a gun to mental health. I was a little naive back then, right? Because I, I thought maybe we can help fund the programs that they talk about that have been cut over the years for outreach to stop some of these mass shooters. I didn't understand that finding the next mass shooter is like the equivalent of finding a needle in a haystack because there's no future predictor of violence. There's no, this isn't the movie Minority Report. Um, so when I started to contact people on the mental health side that were willing to sit down with me and listen, uh, you know, they were pushing me to suicide prevention, right? But that still didn't make up for the organization didn't have anything that was their own programs to kind of address mental health issues that might lead to suicide or, you know, those type of issues. Um, when that happened, it forced me to look at the inside of the, the organization and say, well, what can we do as the gun community? Anybody can hand money over to the mental health. Anybody can do that, right? You could go right now and donate $200 to Mental Health America if you wanted to and feel good about yourself. You did your part. You gave them some money, you know, to keep it going. But because of that, I looked at, okay, we have valuable space in the firearms community. We can't give restriction. We can't give legislation. We can't cave on those things. Those are non-starters for people in the firearms community, but we do have valuable space inside the firearms box, right? We do have valuable space on the gun counter of the store. Um, we do have valuable space inside of the training slides that firearms instructors use, right? So that's what my organization does is we kind of look at all the different places where we can work with the mental health community and say, well, that's kind of cool. We can give you that. We can do that. Right. And one of the things that we do that you had asked about is the firearms manufacturers. We have a mental health flyer that leads to free and anonymous mental health screenings. So basically you can go take a screen. There's anxiety, depression, substance abuse, PTSD, the list goes on and on and on but you can go and take a screen and you don't have to be in crisis to take a screening, right? You can go on there, take a screening just to see where you're at and that's it. Stay anonymous, right? Or you could take it a step further. You can, you can find, you know, local resources that might be able to help you with whatever you're going through. But that's really what I wanted to do is I wanted to get firearms owners to start having the conversation, even if it was with themselves in their own head, like, Hey, maybe I should go check it out. So, I started putting this flyer in all the firearms manufacturers that I represented. And it was really cool because, you know, when I first started telling people about it, they were kind of like, Oh, you know, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Like it'd be interesting to see what kind of feedback you get. Well, it was all positive. 
we'd have people calling up Eagle Imports and saying like, hey, I saw this flyer in here, or, you know, we get an email, saw the flyer, open up the box, saw the flyer. It's really cool that you're doing this. So uh, once I saw that I didn't get drummed out of the firearms industry because of putting a mental health flyer in the box, I was like, all right, like, let's go start asking other firearms manufacturers if they'd put this mental health flyer in the box. Now, keep in mind, it's easier for Walk Talk America to approach firearms manufacturers about this because we're homegrown made up of firearms industry professionals, right? So we're asking, hey, let's take some responsibility. Let's let's be proactive and let's do some of the things that most likely government will try to force us to do anyways, but we could do it where it's ours. So went up to the high point, Arms Corps, a couple of different manufacturers, you know, I have relationships with the owners uh, just from over the years and said, hey, I really want you to put this in the, the box. What is it? It's a mental health flyer. It leads to free and anonymous mental health screenings. No I'm push. Gonna it, I'm going to put it on the screen, by the way, for you. Yeah, there was no pushback at all. They were just like, this is awesome, right? Um, so there has been, in my opinion, I think a lot of firearms manufacturers, a lot of firearm shops, a lot of trainers were always looking for ways that they could help, but didn't know how, right? We just didn't, we didn't know how. Um, and that's what happens when you stand on opposite sides of the rooms and just stare at each other or finger point. When you actually start having communication, like I did with uh, Mental Health America, who's our, our partner who powers the screenings. I was like, okay, how do we get this out to the masses? Because this is great. Right. And, and, and you can't in no way, shape or form, lose your rights, get in trouble for taking these screenings. Like I said, they're free and anonymous. Anonymous really speaks volumes to people in the firearms industry. So those are some of the innovative ways that we're kind of bridging this gap and actually making a difference, you know, by including this card because the box is valuable space. Right. And the best part about it is the manufacturers aren't saying we'll do it if you pay me. You know, we'll, we, we, you know, this is what it would cost. Every manufacturer, and I think we're up to 17 now, uh, has said, no, this is awesome. We'll, 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 we'll totally throw it in there. No problem. And I love that. And I think it's good for the mental health community to see that too. Because if the, the perception is that the firearms industry doesn't do anything, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. That's their reality, right? But then, you know, you lead by example. Don't just point out problems, come up with solutions. These are solutions that even the mental health side is like, that's really cool. That's awesome. Right. And this brings us together ultimately in the end to try to save lives. So that's the firearms box. Yeah. The, beyond the box, there's a different flyer too. And I'll share this screen as well. It's the uh, gun shop flyer. So if you have a retail store or range, it's very similar looking, and this is an old one. We've we've uh, revamped it a little bit, but it says mental health. It's okay to talk about it on one side, and then on the back, it's got a big blank space where clinicians in the local area, and Zephyr Wellness has done this here locally, we can either stamp our logo on it, our contact information, or we can print it for them if they want to you know, kick down and pay for their own flyers because it's advertising, really. But these sit passively on the shelf uh, you know, at the, at the register or wherever. And while the transaction is being run or the background checks waiting to come back, whatever it is, um, people can pick it up and look at it like they look at any other flyer that's sitting there. And it passively says, hey, we as a, we as a store, we as firearms community, we endorse getting your noggin 
checked once in a while and it provides the link to the free screenings and i'll uh, i'll share the the screening link too uh what it looks like on the on the website so for the listening audience who can't see it uh we have if you go to wtta.org love which is the screening link you'll see it says uh, take a mental health test right and there's the mental health america logo there you scroll down and you see 13 different screenings there's depression anxiety bipolar disorder addictions work health ptsd parents youth eating disorders psychosis and a couple of them in spanish so the uh, anxiety and the depression test are both in spanish as well so you just click on it you you work through answer six to eight questions it spits you out a number if the number's higher than you like uh maybe it's time to go contact a counselor like ours you know like our shop and um take care of it so you asked about the course though and i think it's a good segue into how do these people get professional help if they want it for many years like i mentioned before we've sort of stood across the self-imposed chasm and um and and mike alluded to it like you know something tragedy strikes and these two sides and i hate using the sides thing but uh they, they blame each other and so as a result uh i think mental health clinicians have become largely suspicious of firearms owners we don't understand them we don't a lot of us don't own them there's there's political differences whatnot and so as a result there's not a uh, there's not a box to check on on a on a biography page such as like on psychologytoday.com where lots of us have ourselves advertised and our businesses advertised that they have different demographics and different things you can check in different uh, uh specialty areas well guns is not one of them uh second amendment ally is not a box that's that psychology today offers we'd love for them to do that we haven't yet we haven't yet reached out to ask but we we kind of wanted to have some competence built in behind it too to substantiate that it's not just some whimsical fancy that like oh i like guns yeah i'll check that box we want we want some teeth to it so that we can as clinicians we can say reasonably uh, upon questioning, here's why I'm competent to deal with this demographic. And that brings in our cultural competence course. So I, I alluded earlier that when Mike and I met and I had this great idea that we could get continuing education credit for teaching mental health practitioners about firearms culture. Uh, well, we did, we went ahead and did that and we did it twice in 2019. They were, they, they were both in person at Reno guns and range at the facility. We had 12 or 14 people in each one. And that's about all as, as big of a group as we could manage. We had another one scheduled for Vegas in March of 2020. We were anticipating that one to be a little larger, but then the world ended. And so we had to scrap it. And that was a blessing in disguise because what it did was it it forced us to reevaluate whether or not we needed this thing in person. Because the, the original courses, there was a there's a shooting component. You actually put them on the range and we presumed that the, the attendees knew nothing about guns. So we put a gun in their hands and said, here, shoot. And it was very cool, but it was also intimidating and we realized we had to look at a different side of the box and and get out from behind our own side of the box and realize that for people who are suspicious or skeptical or, or otherwise skittish of being around guns going to a gun range for class is not real enticing as it would happen we all moved to zoom and we all have these virtual meetings now and we thought hey what a great idea we'll just we'll just take the course virtually mike and rob and i can compare prepare the same exact materials and we'll just present it present it in a virtual setting and that way people can do it from the comfort of their own home it's sort of at arm's length uh, you don't have to get up close and personal but we can still get them the information across and so we did in the first class we did in um, 
uh, October had 74 or 76 attendees. And the next one we did in December had 234, 236. It was, it was crazy. Like we had, we had such a great overwhelming participation all across the country too. It wasn't just Nevada, although it was heavy Nevada and it, it was awesome. And now that course is hosted on our website for free. If anybody wants to go take it, it's three hours long, take it. There's a quiz at the end. Uh, you pass the quiz, you get a certificate, you can wave that in people's face and say, I'm, I'm trained in, uh, and educated in firearms, cultural competence. Well, here's the best part. Two more classes are coming. <laughs> There's a part two and a part three. And if you do the whole, uh, program, you get a certificate, you get certified as firearms competent. So we, we love doing that. We love being that vehicle, but what's even better is now that we have put some people through we're creating a database by which they can advertise themselves on our website so no longer do you have to speculate as to whether or not the counselor you're going to go see understands you and your culture you can just know for sure that if they have that little walk talk america badge hanging on their signal their website or, or they're hosted on our website you can walk in with confidence knowing you're not going to be judged, which is, which is everything. That's, that's, we want, we want to remove barriers to care so that people can come in and get the care they need and stop being suicidal and stop having the, the conflicts in the home and the workplace and, the, and stop the addictions and all that stuff. So we're really encouraged by what's, by the feedback we've gotten and, and where the program is going. And it, and it looks really, really cool. There's lots of other future endeavors that we're excited about things like bringing it to children's programs and teaching families and uh, foster parents. And uh, there's been a great groundswell of support for that particular program. And we're, we couldn't be prouder of it, honestly. Yeah. It's the way that it, I, me in particular is the ungun gun guy. Like what I love about the way that we've done this. And obviously I look at everything like, you know, these are obviously my children, right? All these programs and walk talk America is my baby. But I will say that one thing I'm proud of, and it's guys like Jake and, and Rob is we just do a great job of making it okay. Like no matter what you're feeling, like maybe you're just like, I, I don't even really like guns, right? That's okay. Like we know that you don't like guns because a, they are scary. They can kill and you don't want to see people die. And for the majority of the country, if somebody doesn't like a firearm, usually it's because they don't like the destruction that can come with it. Um, and we have to understand that. I mean, there's politicians, obviously, that have, you know, agendas and they act like certain ways. But the average person on the street, like I hate firearms. And usually what I try to do, and this is the attitude I wanted to have with the class. When I meet somebody that doesn't understand firearms, they're firearm ignorant. I always try to say, look, we have these conversations. But before we begin and, we, and it gets like to the debating thing or you're asking these questions so at the end of this, two things are going to happen. You're either going to a say, I hate fire. I just hate firearms. I wish they'd all go away. A little unrealistic, but I appreciate that. Or you're going to say, I need to rethink the way I think about firearms. And usually it's the latter that happens, right? Because you have these, these discussions, you don't get emotional. And you just make people understand that it's okay to hate firearms. You know, you don't have to like everything. Um, but that's how I feel the attitude of the class is. So even if you're the most, and we had somebody, uh, Jake, I'm talking about the, the, you know, when they did the survey at the end, the one, the, there was somebody that took it and said, uh, you know, one of the questions was like, 
what's one thing that you took away from this that's really special or something like that? I, I'm paraphrasing, but it was uh, before I took the class, I was super anti-gun and now I'm moderate. Right? And that's that's exactly what I was just explaining. Like that, We love that. Didn't have to go pro like super gung-ho gun person now, but I'm moderate. Right? So I think that's why the class is effective. Um, I'm really glad that you you brought that up because especially where we are in the world right now, especially in America, and we've seen some horrible things happen, uh, especially even up to a few weeks ago as far as uh, gun violence. And um, but then also on the flip side of being the pro pro two a and uh, people who are stuck in the middle because they're drawn to the fact that bad things are happening by bad people or people that are. Um, not in the right place, but feel powerless to do anything to stop it or help it. And at the same time, um, still want to keep their own firearms and their own constitutional rights and um, to do it in a respectful and safe manner. You know, what kind of advice would you give to people who are kind of in that middle space and trying to um, like figure out where they stand and and how to help? Does that make sense? Yeah, I was one of those people until I linked up with these guys and got corrupted. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was, I was, I was ambivalent. I was like, yeah, nobody really needs to own an AR, you know. Like, and then I was like, and then I got some education about it, and I and I allowed myself to change my mind, and I didn't want to cling rigidly to the to the viewpoint that I had that you know magazine capacity restrictions were okay, because I, I I'm I'd like to think I'm wise enough and humble enough to to know that. If a whole bunch of people believe something, it's worth listening to, even if it's QAnon, right? There's a reason that people need to believe in the things they believe. And, and we have to pay attention to that because there's merit to it. There may, there may not be merit to the content of it, but there's merit to the reasons, right? And that's what I do in psychotherapy. People come in with all sorts of issues and I want to understand the reasons because to them, it, whatever they're doing makes sense. No matter how heinous or indescribably weird it is, it makes sense to the individual. So you got a community of Second Amendment advocates out there. It's like I, okay, I'm not I'm not getting all all the picture, right? So I listened and I and I heard the the social ramifications, the economic disparities, the racial injustices, the history of firearms in America that I thought I knew but I didn't, um, and then the fundamental right to defend oneself with one's chosen tool. Um, it's not about needing an AR-15. It's about you can have one because you can. That's it. That's that's end of discussion. And debates can be had about the limits to put on how far to take destructive weapons, right? Just like we can have debates about how far to take freedom of speech or any other rights that are enshrined in our bill of rights or are otherwise stated in our constitution. We can have those debates. That's fine. But to make it monolithic and say, thou shalt not because of me and my perspective is woefully inadequate. And I'll, and I'll say something else from a clinical perspective. We have to be mindful of what our neurological functioning is doing when we see things on TV, in print, on social media. They're designed to, to grab your attention. Um, since newspapers were a thing and since they've been profitable, they've been designed with headlines 
to sell newspapers. Now it's clicks. And that's how you get advertisement money. That's how you sustain your media vehicle. So knowing that and knowing how commercials work and knowing how subscriptions work, you can pay attention to, and you can learn more about this on your, on the Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel. I have a whole series on emotional functioning videos or a whole series of videos on emotional functioning, but, but in your limbic system, you have to know the difference between thinking, thinking and feeling. And if the primary drivers for advertisement and clicks and ultimately your eyeballs are excitement and fear, because they get you to act in a certain way, excitement to go buy the new iPhone, fear to uh, go yell at the on the courthouse steps to motivate your legislature legislators to do something uh or fear because firearms community is guilty of this too fear to go buy guns to protect yourself then you can notice that and push through it and not act out of emotion but instead act out of logic and here's what i'm going to show share the screen one more time um people don't know this stuff so i like sharing it so here's what i'm showing here for the listening audience who isn't on youtube is there's uh, three overlapping circles in a Venn diagram. One's large, the next is a little less large, and the third is very tiny. And in order, they go suicides, gun deaths, mass shootings. So mass shootings is entirely inside of gun deaths. Gun deaths and suicides overlap because not all suicides are by gun. And then I have statistics from 2018 from the Centers for Disease Control here in the United States. All firearm deaths, 39,740. So we're talking 40,000 people died by firearm in 2018. Um, of those homicides were roughly 14,000 or 35% suicides were 50%, 50.5. So all firearm deaths so far, we've accounted for 85% of them and we're still not to mass shootings. Now, negligent is about three and a half percent. And then the mass shootings themselves 0.2 or eight, zero, 80. 80 out of the, the nearly 40,000 firearms deaths were from mass shootings. So when you hear about mass shootings being the problem, and you hear about Mike thinking that he, you know, he's going to form this organization to stop mass shootings and then being talked out of it by mental health professionals to say, you're missing the mark. You got to go to, to suicide prevention. It's critical. So let's go to, let's go to firearm suicide, 24,000 roughly out of the 40,000. So that's, that's roughly half, right? But 61% of them are firearm death uh, of the firearm deaths. Sorry, I used the wrong numbers there. So 40,000 firearm deaths, 24,000 are, are uh, suicides. It's 60%. We're 60 plus percent. This is 2018 data. Of all the suicides, 48,000, 24,000 are firearm suicides. So half, half our suicides are by gun. Gun owners have got to pay attention to this. And the broader citizenry has to pay attention and stop chasing down the needle in a haystack because they're they're wasting valuable energy that could otherwise be spent educating people on suicide prevention. You want to, you want to keep 24,000 people from a year from dying by suicide. You're going to make a heck of a lot bigger impact on that number than you will on the 80 of the mass shootings. So when, when I talk to people, I like to share these data because they're so skewed by the advertising dollars driven by the sensationalized headlines pushed by yellow journalism. Yellow journalism is a term for screaming headlines that make you pay attention. It used to be a rare thing back in the day, like back at the turn of the last century, but now it's like, it's all we see. Um, it's because it sells. Suicide coverage doesn't sell. That's it. That's it. It's pure economics. There's no nefarious push. There's no, there's no pro person behind the curtain pulling levers, uh, making you distract away from suicides. It's, it's about 
watch our channel, buy our products that we're advertising on our channel. Here's another mass shooting. Here's another school shooting. Here's another sensational headline because it's sexy and it sells. Suicides don't sell, but they are overwhelmingly the problem. If we want to save lives, we focus on, on the mental health and the mental illness underlying the suicidal ideation. That's how we do it. You can't predict, you can't predict mass shootings. You can't stop them. I'm not saying we, we don't try, but I'm willing to bet that if we address the mental illness, <laughs> we're going to stop a lot of those mass shootings along the way too. So that's, yeah. that's my, that's my two cents. That's my pitch on that. Well, and remember back in our journalism days, Jake, you know, we couldn't, re- we, we were, we were not allowed to, or it was um, uh, discouraged so to, yeah. yeah, to report on suicides. You know, you had yep. somebody jump from the parking garage of one of the big casinos. It never got covered yep. because yep. it was portrayed as we don't want copycats or it's just policy. That's not something that we do. But what if we had been talking about those things back in the early 90s, even late 80s? Would we be right. here today? Because this, you know, idea of suicide, I think for some people who've never been impacted by it, it's kind of like this fairy tale thing that you see in the movies. Um it's not real to a lot of people who've never been touched by it. But if it was something that we were exposed to a lot um, in a certain way, I think things would be a lot different now. Well, it's mysterious too. And you don't get closure a lot of times. Uh, we've had enough conversations now that I pro- I'm comfortable speaking for Mike on this saying um, with, a, with a homicide or otherwise a violent act attributable to a source, you can point your finger and say, there, that's, that's why it happened. Suicide, the perpetrator and the victim are the same and you don't get answers. Mm-hmm. They're gone. And and that was what was frustrating Mike with the death of his friend is that lots of people came to him and you know on the side afterward and they're like, Hey, so uh what'd you see, man? You know, and then and then we we bear the skills. So uh <laughs> Matt Miller, who's the uh head of the VA's suicide prevention effort nationally. He's been on our show, our podcast. Um, and he was on my podcast. We've interacted with him a bunch. He this is the national director of the VA suicide prevention program, right? He says, I don't know if suicide's preventable. Like that's really powerful. And when you when you dig into it, people, most people cock their heads or cock their eyebrows and go, What are you, what are you talking about? And it's the idea that on its face, we don't know because we can't see everything. Okay. That's I, I yield to that. That's fine. But the messaging that comes with suicide is preventable invites a shame and guilt to the survivors around that person that can never be resolved because it, it, it suggests that something could have, or should have been done along the way. Well, if it's preventable, who, who dropped the ball? Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. It's just not true most of the time. And, um, and I, I think that's a point well taken so that when we have the, survive, the, the suicide loss survivors, as we call them, the people who are still alive after a person dies by suicide, we alleviate their, their guilt and shame by not putting any more on them, by asking them, hey, what did you see? How did you, were there any signs? Did they leave a note? Because the, the implied parenthetical that follows is, why didn't you do anything? shame on you. And now we have a ripple effect through the entire crowd of like, oh man, maybe I, maybe I should have done something, which doesn't help any because then we get more, we get more stress after that. So, um, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really tough, uh, conversation to have because it's so spooky because it's mysterious because death is involved. And we, as Western culture don't really handle death well anyway. Um, 
but it but then we invite like this burden right like well i'm having this conversation now i got to do something well sometimes the best thing you can do is refer you know yeah and that's where um when you're dealing with peer support a lot of people are kind of hesitant to one be peer supporters or to go to peer support because what happens if you do something wrong what happens if as much as you try with all your heart and everything you have this person still goes down that path and they're no longer with us. And then now you, you have that, that burden of guilt because you were there to do something and you were not effective. Yeah. And, and, and the thing with suicide is it's permanent, right? So if your child goes down a wrong path, we always have in the back of your heads, like we can turn them around even if they're 45 and still off the path. Right. But if you're dead, you're dead. And, and so it's it, the, the permanence aspect of death is, um, is scary too, for your, to your point that, people don't usually clear their throats and raise their hands to go do this kind of work because they don't want to step into that realm of potentially incurring liability. Even, even if it's not legal liability, it's personal psychological liability. Or just so being, it. you know, chased by the angry Twitter mobs too. Oh yeah. That's you know, that. Yeah. Even this conversation, sometimes I fear like we're trying to be as neutral and show both sides as much as possible. But at the same time, somebody will take something that one of us has said and run with it and twist it because people wanted to use their own narrative, you know, and I I'm at that point in all of this shit that is happening. I just want people to be reasonable and to listen to each other and to give each other grace. And it's just so crazy right now that we're all, we're, you know, very one, one side or the other, politically, we're one side or the other when we're talking about uh, gun rights and also mental health too. So how can we have mental health and um, gun rights and responsible gun ownership live together in harmony where we have people like Mike's talking to um, different nonprofits and different um, advocate organizations and you guys are kind of, you're working hand in hand. So how can that happen more? I, well, for me, it, it would many times the Walk Talk America would just be the first one to do it, right? The first one to step out on the ice and just say like, okay, I'm either going to get drummed out of this community or, hey, listen, there is no glory or money in helping people. We've set society up that way. So like, if I get drummed out of the firearms community because I'm trying to save lives here and I'm trying to make the, you know, the firearms community step up and do more, do more than everybody else. Like that's my, my goal. I want to get the firearms community or industry to where the alcohol industry got with DUIs. Mm-hmm. Nobody blames Johnny Walker when you go do something stupid behind the wheel of a car and kill someone. I think we can get there. I think we can. Sometimes I think we want to go where the tobacco industry is going, but I do think we can, we can get there. But my thing is just, just do something to kind of initiate people to want to help or make earth better. Right. I had to do a lot of these things. I didn't know how they were going to react to it, but turns out that it's okay to kind of talk about mental health and suicide prevention inside the firearms community. We were talking about it in, you know, dark shadows anyways, right? Like closed doors. Let's bring it out in the forefront. I have this saying, like a socially conscious 2A. And that came from, I'm not letting anybody outside of the firearms community tell me what I don't do enough of, right? Like you don't get that right to tell me I'm not socially conscious just because I own a firearm or I own a firearms company. And and I think that's how we do it. We keep breaking down these walls. I mean, 
these stories become anecdotal at some point, but there's enough of them uh, that I know that it's working. And I, there are times when I cross paths with anti-gun organizations or they sway towards that, that way. Right. And when they find out what walk talk America is doing and all these different programs, I can see it in their face. It's genuine. They're, they're really blown away. Cause once again, they had that perception going into the conversation, right? Because it's like, oh, I'm going to talk to this guy. He's probably going to go probably from the cold dead hands, you know, no restrictions. Mm-hmm. This is not a start. We can't even have a conversation. And then it's like, wow, okay, there's these gun owners out there that are like that, like that really want to do something different, change the whole game up, right? And that helps because I these these programs, I couldn't have done it without the help of the mental health side, right? It was taking their information that they were giving me and saying, okay, how do we apply it to us? Like, how do we figure it out back here? What can we give up? Space in a box? That's nothing. That has nothing to do with restriction, right? Like that's not going to come back to haunt any of us. <laughs> like that's that's something that should have been done years ago. It's not rocket science. Like that's how we do it. I think, I think for me, um, I had I say this story frequently, and I'll say it here. Cause I might as well, I had to come out of the closet as a firearms owning clinician to my own clinical community. And I'm, and I know that I, I took heat for it. Um, people, you ask, how, how do we do this? It's individual. It has to be an individual choice. We have individually made the decision, Mike and I, uh, to step forward and be bold, whatever that means, be courageous. Uh, knowing that not everybody's going to agree. Some people have such fragile egos and need such a certain view of the world that's not aligned with reality, it's just their view, that they will seek to confirm their biases no matter what. And you're never going to win those people over. So my advice is when that happens, you ignore them and move on. Because even though they tend to hold the bullhorn and they shout the loudest, they represent the smallest percentage. Meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of other people who are who are in line and and really aligned with your with your desires and your movement. I've I've experienced that repeatedly. Um, I don't like it. It, it. I like consensus. I like agreement. I like people to. I like a hundred percent, right? Um, especially when things make sense. But sometimes ideologies and beliefs get in the way, and people just can't change their minds. Okay. Um, and then sometimes those people end up being so insecure that they believe that they need to tear you down or shout you down or otherwise disparage or uh, besmirch your good name or reputation. Okay. Uh, I've been fortunate so far not to have that happen on a big grand scale like some other people I see on the in the social media world. But I watch very carefully and I pay very close attention to how they handle it. Some don't handle it real well. Some just capitulate to the to the squeaky mob, and then they lose their voice, they lose their efficacy, they lose their traction, and then the cause is long gone. That breaks my heart. But then there's other people who withstand it, and their influence grows. And yeah, the squeaky mob gets a little louder, but they but they tend to be anonymous, which is really interesting to me. Um, but what happens is they're able to achieve that on what I think are two, two distinct principles. And they, they usually go together, I believe, but not always. One is a well 
articulated, clearly decided rationale, purpose, mission, and vision for why they do what they do. They are anchored so firmly in an unshakable foundation of what they believe is right and true. And it usually is because truth resonates with people that when they get attacked, the attacks come off as absurd. And so even though they get voice and I'm thinking social media, right? Usually this is where this happens. The attacks are, they just, they just fall off. This is like water off a duck's back. It's there for a little bit. You're a little wet, you're a little cold, but eventually it rolls back into the pond uh, and the duck keeps swimming. And the other thing is an unshakable faith that continuing to move forward will build momentum to the greater good. And I, and I think that what we're doing here not only is well articulated, it's anchored in truth, and it's definitely for the greater good that it's really hard for people to attack it. And so far, the only people who have attacked it are either anonymous or they fall into that category of I'm just not interested in changing my beliefs because I've made my mind up and I know and I know from what I have interpreted you to be all of who you are, right? which is totally not advisable. Um, <laughs> people can be many things, but the, they, they tend to fall into those two categories. And so it's like, OK, you're just trolling or you really, 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 truly believe in your beliefs and you're never going to move off. them. All right, that's fine. Uh, my training is still pulling out of the station. And on it are like several hundred thousand passengers. I don't, I don't really care that the 15 of you aren't getting on. I've given you a fair shake. I've given you lots of time. I've even invited you to dialogue and you've rejected all those invitations. So we're just leaving you at the station now. So I, I, I have a lot of belief that we're going to do that. And so if we start doing that, long answer to your question, what people can see in us is, well, Jake came out of the closet as a firearms owning clinician. Maybe I can too, because guess what? We have statistics that back up that about half the country either owns a gun or lives with somebody who does. So if you're a clinician, you're a physician, you're an attorney, you're whoever you are in your profession listening to this and you're like, I just don't need to care about people with guns. That's half your clientele. That's half your clientele. You're really going to, you're really going to be willfully ignorant about the culture of half your clientele, no matter what it is you do. And especially if you work in my profession, where we're dealing with people who are in crisis, who are struggling with mental illness, who don't make great decisions when they're emotionally flooded, and we have to talk them through all their options. And we're just going to like shirk the responsibility of understanding the most lethal form of suicide attempt. That's foolish. So I like to call my own people onto the carpet and be like, hey, if this is burning your ears, you might want to pay attention to it. Because that's the quickest way to identify a blind spot is if you get defensive. That's that's the area you need to work. Yeah. And keep in mind, too, like one of the other things that I'm very proud of this organization, everybody that's been involved, is we just don't get into political BS. Like my opinions on the border or abortion or transgender rights, this is not what we're here to talk about. Those don't matter. Like we want that checked at the door. And those are for private conversations or whatever amongst you. Like, like we, we refuse to get, we, we refuse to feed the troll, right? Like we won't do, there's all these different organizations doing great things. And you see like some of the, the leaders of them say something really that has nothing to do with what they're focusing on. Like we're, we're focused on making earth better, providing help to people in crisis that need it, specifically firearms owners and suicide prevention like the rest of the stuff that's that's for other people to talk about on twitter 
You know what I mean? Like that's not our place to do it. And I feel like that has helped a lot because there's organizations out there. You know, I say this all the time. Like, I, believe me, I, I make fun of my own people the most, right? Private from a cold dead hands, like get off my lawn. Like <laughs> I need those guys to, to be like that because what happens is people are like, I can't talk to that guy. I can talk to you, man. <laughs> like, let's have a conversation. And <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that helps is when, okay, you're approachable. You don't look like a duck dynasty dude. You know what I mean? Like you can, ha- it looks like you can have sort of a conversation without getting, uh, uh, you know, emotional. Like that's, that's what I think I pride myself on with this organization. Um, and I think that's how you, you kind of build that bridge is communication. I mean, there, there's nothing better than, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I don't want to phrase this the wrong way. Mass shootings happened. We had a couple of them in the last few weeks. They're horrible, right? But there's nothing better to me than when the leaders of these mental health organizations call me after this happens and ask certain questions, right? Like, even if they're asking the same questions and I already informed them of that, like, hey, why gun owners won't come off of the AR thing? It's just nice that before that they release a statement or they, you know, attach themselves to something that they'll call me now and say like, Hey, I just, I need you to help me. I'm working through this. (laughs) You know, we're both upset, but I have a question or why can't, and then I can give them, you know, not in an emotional way, the answers that they're looking for to make them think the perspective. Why don't you share? Why don't you share that? By the way, those those couple two or th- there's always two or three things that come up. One of them is, is the AR thing. Why don't you share that? So if anybody's listening and they're like, "Yeah, answer it," <laughs> like we we do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like that's that. Well, that's one of the great things about the organization is one of the one of the programs that we have. It's not an official program per se. Is that we bring mental health professionals from different organizations to work our booths at gun shows, so the NRA show or Shot Show. We'll have people from Mental Health America there. We'll have people from NAMI. We'll have people from different organizations that will come through and, you know, suicide prevention coalitions that that'll work the show. And that's a that's a time for education for both. It's a two way street. Right. So I could take that person around. I can actually show them with the firearms physically in other people's booths, the AR, the mechanics, the difference, what things are as an issue, because people are always just like, well, if you just gave up your ARs. That would, that would solve a lot of problems, not realizing that it's going to create a lot more problems and giving up ARs won't stop these mass shootings. It won't even put a little dent in them. Nothing's going to change, right? But you can't get that education without first having a relationship, a trusted one with someone that can explain it to you. And because you're not into firearms, I might be able to tell you that and then two days later, you're going to forget. But you need to know that the door is always open to come back to me to have me explain it to you again. I'm a big proponent of like explaining to me like I'm a five-year-old. I think it's like a Denzel Washington thing in the movie Philadelphia, right? Like when I heard him say that, I was like, damn, he's talking about me too. Like, <laughs> No, because sometimes that's what you need, right? You need somebody to be able to explain it to you again to make it make sense. And also you, your ego you don't want to yell that or you don't want to piss somebody off while you're asking these questions. And that's really what I feel like we do. Um, so, break, that helps. so break it down. Why, why can't we just give up the ARs and it'll be okay? Because AR mechanically is a semi-automatic 
pistol like the one that was used in, in Boulder, right? Or a semi-automatic rifle. It's one shot, one per click. Yeah. Per click, right? And because the AR looks like a scary full automatic weapon that the military uses, and that that's the narrative that's always put out there, it's hard for people to wrap their head around when they see like grandpa's hunting rifle that that's wooden. Right. They totally separate that from an AR, which is right. you know, called assault rifle. Like, the, I mean, we, this is, you, we could actually do a whole show on this. <laughs> you know, we spend- uh, in fact, if you want, there's about an hour of our three hour course on the website. If you want to just take, just watch us talk about this stuff, Rob does a great job of breaking it down and it'll, it'll answer a lot of questions. I think that's how people move from totally anti gun to, oh, now I get it. I don't have to be anti gun because now I get it. Because there is no, the, the, the answer, by the way, is where does the line get drawn and why? So if, if it's based on looks, well, that's pretty silly. Um, if it's based on mechanics, you're talking all the guns, oh, right. <laughs> uh, all the guns. And so you can't, you can't draw a clean line that's going to make everybody, and I'll just put air quotes around this too, feel safe. Because it's not about feeling. It's about practicality. So what are we practically going to do? to eliminate firearms deaths, we got to eliminate the firearms altogether. And, you know, that's good luck with that, I guess. I mean, there is a mechanism for that. It's available under the constitution. You can, you can repeal the second amendment. That's fine. Nobody's going to try it because a survey just came out recently. A thousand people were polled, uh, really well balanced. 49 of the respondent, 49% of the respondents voted for Trump. 51% uh, the respondents voted for Biden and 70, almost 71%, 72% of them are gun rights favorable, either extremely favorable or, or mostly favorable. And only like, I think six, six and a half percent were strongly opposed with like a collective 16 or 17% opposed. So you got a bipartisan cross political survey that says almost three fourths of the country and it's a thousand people. The N is not huge, but it's big. Um, that say three fourths of the country aren't going to go for a cosmic, uh, constitutional cosmic. That would be interesting. A constitutional yeah. amendment change to get rid of gun rights. So, so that's kind of off the table, practically speaking. So that leaves us, you know, what, what kind of control do you, you put in place background checks? We already got them more background checks. I, you're not going to stop the criminals. Um, you know, so, uh, mental health, we want to put mental health into a background check. Yee, not wise. Uh, anybody who touches a patient should not sign on for that. Cause then where does that line get drawn? Does it go into physical health too? What happens to HIPAA as a federal law? Uh, is going to some, your medical stuff goes into some central repository. That's, that's not wise. So it just becomes this big bogged down mess. And we just, we just don't need to talk about it. We need to talk about helping people in practical ways and that's education training personal responsibility um hopefully it starts with the youth you know but uh we'll keep doing what we're doing and having conversations about it with flyers telling me jake too before that you were helping teach uh clinicians and other mental health professionals how to evaluate someone who um got their guns taken away can you we are not there yet so you're diving into red flag laws and why we would even have such a necessity. So people don't just get their guns taken away um, very often. And they 
there's questions about whether or not that should even exist based on due process issues and fourth amendment issues, you know, search and seizures, that kind of thing. But what we're, what we're discussing here is the concept of what people know as a red flag law and red flag laws are traditionally more accurately known as ERPO, E-R-P-O, extreme risk protection orders. Protection order is the technical legal name for what most people call in the media restraining order. Uh, so there's no, re- you're not restraining anyone. You're not physically binding their hands or anything, but you're, it's a protection order that orders somebody not to go around a certain person or a certain group of people or near a school or whatever it is. So this is an extreme risk protection order and like 17 or 19 states have adopted them now. And what it says is in the event of a crisis in which uh, the individual it poses a threat to self or others through the use of firearms, um, judge can order those firearms taken away. All right. So on its face, it sounds like a good, safe idea, except for the due process issues and the, and the fourth amendment stuff. Cause the question becomes who takes the guns, who holds on to them for how long. And that's not addressed in any of these laws. Uh, I could, I do a class on this. I do teach this. So I'm not going to go into it now because it's going to bore everybody to tears. I'm sure. But yeah. But it is part of our presentation if you want to go to the website and watch the watch the class. Um, but let's fast forward to somebody who has their, their rights taken away, the right to own a firearm, right, not privilege, right, enshrined in the Constitution of the United States of America, just like every other right that's in the Constitution, right to own and keep and bear a firearm. They have that taken away for this uh, under this mental health crisis, we'll call it. How do you get it back? Well, the, the path to restriction uh, is, is pretty easy. A family member, in most cases, a family member or a person who lives with you can petition the court and in their petition, they, they line out the reasonable suspicion that they have that, that you're unstable and you shouldn't be around guns. And the court needs to determine, um, a, uh, sorry, reasonable suspicion is what the family members need. They need, um, uh, a little bit higher level of proof. They need, they need a, um, geez, I'm blanking right now. <laughs> they need to be able to determine from that, that application that this is justifiable, right? So um, law enforcement can also issue the petition. Law enforcement needs what's called uh, probable cause. Probable cause is one step above reasonable suspicion. So law enforcement or family members can petition the court. The court takes the, the document, court meaning judge. Judge takes the document here. She looks at it, says yay or nay issues the protection order and deputies come and knock on your door, take your gun. So you can imagine all the problems that come along with such a, such an event, but we'll presume that this goes well and the person gives them up without a fight and all this stuff. Okay. Now someone's hanging on to them, the deputies or whatever. How do you get them back? Well, law says clear and convincing evidence, clear and convincing is at the top of the chain of burden of proof. So you only need a reasonable suspicion to get your rights taken away, but you need clear and convincing evidence to have them restored. The problem is no one knows what clear and convincing evidence is. Judges have ad hoc asked mental health professionals to provide an assessment of the individual and an evaluation of sorts to determine if they're well enough to receive them back. And that would ostensibly be the clear and convincing evidence. It's clear and convincing that this professional assessed you and determined that you're safe. Okay. How many professionals are comfortable doing that? How many have been trained? Is there a training program? No, 
No, no, there aren't any to any of those questions. And the guy who originated this, his name is Johnny Pirelli. He's been on our podcast too. He wrote a book called The Behavioral Science of Firearms. It's about 600 pages long and it's very, very good, but it is the seminal work that kicked off this whole conversation because he was getting asked by local area authorities and individuals themselves who maybe needed a permit to purchase a gun saying, Hey, I need a gun eval. Hey, Dr. Pirelli, give me a gun eval. And he's like, what's a gun eval? And he scoured the literature. He consulted with his colleagues up the chain to his professor, his old professors and uh, across the board couldn't find anything because there isn't anything. So he wrote this book and from that book, we create our course. So presumably by the end of taking our course, a clinician can say, I, your honor, am certified by Walk the Talk America with the only, not Johnny's doing one too. He's, he's got a 10 hour course. He's about to uh, unveil. So it's like a train the trainer kind of thing. But outside of our two programs, there is no certification for somebody who can go in and assess an individual and restore their firearms rights. And these things, these assessments cost lots and lots of money. They're only available to people who have money. So you can imagine now where the red flag laws go with regard to disproportionate enforcement of these laws upon minority communities who don't maybe have access or means or who are otherwise judged impoverished communities who don't have the means uh, or the knowledge. Um, so we as an organization, we oppose red flag laws because they create all sorts of problems, but also because it stands as a barrier to care, psychologically speaking, when you go, I don't want to go to the counselor because I might be deemed crazy by either the counselor or my wife or whatever it is. And then my rights are at stake. So we don't like the red flag laws because they're they, they presumably just send out this message that says, if you go get care, you could potentially lose your ability to carry guns. And for how long? We don't really know. Courts operate slowly. Clinicians aren't available. Money is tight. All the, all the reasons. Um, they are on the books, however, and knowing that they're probably not going to get pulled off the books, what we can do is advocate for amending them to at least make the burden of proof aligned so that the path to restriction and the path to restoration are equivalent. That's a problem right now is that they're not equivalent. They're asymmetric. And we need to at least fix that. If we're going to leave the red flags laws on the book, and so far we don't even have any evidence or research that suggests they work. Um, if we're going to leave them on the books, then we got to at least make them fair. Mm -hmm. I just figured out what time it is. Um, I want to, be <laughs> I could talk to you guys all day, uh, but I do want to be respectful. And I have a feeling I'll be seeing you guys again soon anyway. Is there anything that you guys want to talk about or to say before we go? Preponderance of evidence is the phrase I was looking uh, for. The judge okay. needs a preponderance of the evidence uh, stated in that application to issue the order. And <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for having us on. Um, I guess, you know, I'd like to just tell the audience where they can find us if they want to hear more or find out more, um, you know, go to our website, WTTA.org or walkthetalkamerica.org. Um, and then on social media, we're, we have a YouTube channel. Uh, on social media, we're at walkthetalkus, Instagram, Twitter. We're pretty interactive. Um, there's about three people that kind of are always there rotating things. So we get back to messages very fast. Um, but yeah, I mean, go to the website. You can see everything we do. I mean, it's too hard to cover everything we do in a, a small block, but um, yeah, check it out. 
Can anybody take those classes on your website or do you have to be a mental health professional? No, anybody can take them and they're, and they're designed for that. So for, for Nevada, for example, in Nevada, for example, they're good for a post uh, certification training. So post PCA officer standards and training, that's the people who uh, certify the police, the sworn, the sworn people. And uh, if you're a, a, a law enforcement officer in Nevada, anyway, our course is good for that as well. Cause you need continuing education as a law enforcement officer. And I would presume that if you live somewhere else and you're hearing this and you want to take the course and use it to your benefit for your continuing education credits, uh, because we cover suicide, because it's a cultural competence course, I, I would have a tough time believing that any uh, licensing board or credentialing body would turn that down. So yes, it's available to everybody. It was purposely designed to bring in both the clinician and the layperson, as well as you know anybody who's just curious. And you get a certificate. Who doesn't want more certificates? Gold star for me. Gold star for me. Was there anything you wanted else? Oh, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about, Jake, before we go? You got raccoon fatigue. Um, okay. No, I already, I already plugged myself enough on the uh, the YouTube channel, but I am a big fan of understanding emotional functioning. So Zephyr Wellness, ZephyrWellness.org is, is our company's website. The Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel is where I would send people. And then the podcast, we have a gun, Mike and I host a guns and mental health podcast. And the, the conversations are very powerful. They're, they're really good. They're, they're fun most of the time. We cover a lot of really good stuff. The guests are amazing. And uh, I would invite people to, to, to do that, subscribe, you know, and, and share it around. And I say frequently that this stuff doesn't do any good locked up in our heads. So we want to get it out and, you know, make, like Mike says, make earth better. Like that's the point. I'm on Twitter too, at Jake Whisk. If anybody awesome. cares. Everybody cares. It's Twitter. But I will post. <laughs> I will post the links to all of your guys' different resources, and then I'll see if I can find that book that you were talking about. Um, that way people can click on it and um, see, have easy access to, oh gosh, my brain. Behavioral <laughs> easy access. Terms. <laughs> yes, that one. Um, yeah, I, I have no words. I'm super grateful to you guys. I, um, I learned a lot and um, I... I just, I'm still processing a lot of the things that you said, because I think for an average person, it's hard um, to kind of see both sides and, and feel both sides, depending on how you grew up or um, your own mental health. So I appreciate everything that you guys said. And um, yeah, I'm, I'll probably have so many more ideas to talk to you about later. Yeah. Well, we're here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. I know we we shot way over what we were supposed to do. So I appreciate you also uh, being a little lenient on that and letting us, we can get a little long-winded. We live this, you know. <laughs> I just, I just let you guys go because you're so good at it. I, you didn't even need me to be here. You could have just given me the file. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good though. And, and I, and I appreciate the work that you do too. So I'm, I'm excited to have you on our show and talk about, you know, the dispatch world and uh, Nevada peer support and all that stuff. Cause it's, it's very, very good work and people need to hear about it. So I'm just, I'm honored to be a part of, you know, other good people doing good things. It's fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. And I hope that you found something that really resonates with you. I can't wait to share even more. So please subscribe to the podcast and you can find links to our resources in the description and at your oxygen mask first.com.